right. Well, we have got a lot to cover. I hardly know where to start. My mind is a little bit scattered because um, I, I literally forgot to do one chapter homework last night. Was I was getting toward the end of preparing my lesson, I went, oh, we were supposed to do another chapter in Chronicles? <laughs> I had already done four. I, you know, Somehow I missed it, and I went back and reread the instructions. And sure enough, there was one more chapter. So guess who was up into the wee hours still working on observations? Fortunately, it was a quick one, so it wasn't too bad. Okay, now, what I want to do right now... Because, remember last week, I took you back and tried to redo a little bit more on context setting. And for most of you were here, but for some of you, you weren't. There's a couple of you. Um, and Dawn, we didn't introduce you either. You haven't been coming to the morning class, but you now are back. And we're so thankful to have you here. Yeah, and you got distracted and you were sick. You're better now. I'm so glad to hear that. Okay, now, here's what we want to do. I want to go back and just very quickly review what, what it is that these uh, Israelites knew, what King Solomon himself knew, because I really feel like the, these points, if you don't take every single one of these chapters and filter it through, the, the knowledge of what the context is for these people and where their mind was supposed to be, then what can happen is you can read the text, the written account of what was going on at that time, and you can whiz right past points that are being made that are profound, and they have a, a really specific... Do, were any of you guys reading through, and when all of a sudden it mentions this one guy that gets brought in from uh, the king of Tyre, and it tells you about his family background, and you're like, what has that got to do with anything, right? Well, it has something to do with everything. So what we have to understand is why certain things are popped in there, why they're dropped in, why they're stated, and we have to filter it through this, what they know, where they've come from, and, and where they're headed. And, and actually where they actually, not only where they are historically at the time of the information that's being written about Solomon and his kingdom and all that, but where they are historically on the timeline when this account is written. So let's go back now and do this. There's a Mosaic covenant. They did know this, correct? What, what kind of a covenant is this? Pardon? Conditional. So the, it's a conditional covenant based on what? Obedience. Right? And if, you, and if you obey, what's going to happen? God will do what? He will bless. Right? And then there's the opposite, however, and I don't have room to write it in there, but what's going to happen if they don't obey God? The cursing. And can anybody just off the top of your head name some of the things that God said would happen if they did not? And by the way, I've given you some references here so you can go back and look at some of this on your own. What, what do you think, what's going to happen if they don't? They, the most essential one is they are going to be kicked off the land, that God will re quickly remove them from the land if they're not being on, walking in obedience to him. Um, another thing that's just, just because I always have to throw it in here, I want you to remember that this particular covenant called the Mosaic Covenant is also called the law, and it is a corporate national covenant. Okay, so this particular covenant, it's not like the Abrahamic covenant where it was made with an individual. And with the Abrahamic, 
Ab the Abrahamic covenant, it resulted in what? What happened when Abraham believed God? It was credited to him as righteousness, which means what? Salvation. This covenant, however, does not result in salvation, right? And we can go, we could spend hours talking about what it did mean, what was the purpose of the law. We can go into Romans. Romans talks about the purpose of the law. But uh, I just want you to remember that it's conditional based on obedience. And if they were obedient, then God would obey. Would, uh, if they were obedient, God would bless them. Now, let's go into a couple points that are some specifics that God gave to them. One is in Deuteronomy 7. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 7, this was written by Moses. They were in their journey about to enter into the land to take possession of it. And in chapter 7, God makes, God, there you go. Don, speak it out loud. Don't marry, don't marry outside their, to the pagans. That's right. Yeah, there you go. Don't marry outside of their own nation. They were to not marry or intermarry. Yes. So tell me, why were they not to marry? What was the principle? Because it's not just that one statement. What was the principle behind it? Right. Okay. So in other words, their hearts would be drawn away. They would follow other gods, right? And then, and then the result would be that God would have to do what? cast them out of the land again, right? It's very interesting to me that that particular passage was written at the same time God wrote the account that he wrote in Genesis chapter 6 when he said men were marrying anyone whom they wished, right? And then what happened to the world and then the flood had to come? The whole world became corrupt. Why? Because they intermarried with unbelieving people. And pretty soon, good company or bad company corrupts good morals, is what Corinthians says. The, the good don't often wear off on the bad. It's the bad that tend to wear off on the good. And in the case of that, that principle, God had it, had it, apparently had it in place in the days of Noah, but they had violated it. And now we see here, as they're about to enter into the land, God gave them the same commandment again. And he says, do not intermarry with those that are in the land, because if you do... They're going to draw your hearts away from me. And when, they, when you do that, you're going to start to worship those other gods, right? And, and I will have to cast you off the land. So the first one was um, do not intermarry. And I have to tell you, there's a verse just before it that actually takes that subject of marriage, not marrying any. Uh, anyone who's outside of faith. And it actually broadens it. It makes it bigger. And it, this is what it says, make no covenant with those of other nations. It actually says, that, make no covenant. So what is a covenant? Besides marriage, what other kind of covenants are there? Business transactions in which you make a vow to them to promise to do one thing and if they'll do another and then you'll do that. So not only do not intermarry, but also make no covenants. with other nations. All right. Um, another one that's really uh, profound, and God had it in the Ten Commandments concerning having God uh, be, being their only God. What were they not to do that we have seen already in this particular book? We saw it back in 1 Kings chapter 3. That's right. They were not to worship on the high places. And 
we who did Ezekiel not too long ago, it's been a couple years or so, but what did we find that Israel, one of their great sins that God was judging them for? What, what had they been doing? Worshiping on the high places, right? What do we see happening in um, chapter 3 of First Kings with uh, Samuel? I mean, with Solomon. There he was worshiping on high places. Very interesting. But he didn't only just worship on high places, but he also went to a place called the great high place. Now, what is the distinction between those two things that, are, that we learned last week? That's right. One was at the place of Gibeon. And what was at Gibeon? The tabernacle. Was the tabernacle sanctioned by God as a place to worship him? Yes. So it was an okay place to worship. But there are other high places. It says the people were going to the high places and Solomon also. So what does that tell you in this, at this point about, kingdom, about, the king, about King Solomon and maybe his mindset as a king? Very worldly, yeah, much more worldly than we anticipate or maybe our perceptions have been about King Solomon in the past. Uh, for me, I've entered into this. I kind of knew where I was going to land in the end, but I didn't realize it happened so quickly in his kingdom because we're early, early in his kingdom, right? We're at like year four, it said, correct, this week? So by year four, we're already seeing Solomon is worshiping on the high places along with the other people. So one of the things he actually knew, though, God has told him this. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, you can go to verses 13 and 14, and you'll see a reference there about that. Do not worship on high places. Do not lift your skirt on every green hill. Remember those verses out of Ezekiel? And what was it that God had told them that they would do? as far as worship was concerned. Deuteronomy 12, verses 13 and 14. Mm -hmm. what, what did God tell them that they were, as far as worship was concerned? That they were to worship where? Only at the place which I shall choose, right? Only at the place which I shall choose. All right, now, um, one more, yes. If it, it, I think the one you're talking about, he was doing it at Gibeon, which would have been the, an acceptable place to do that. Now, was he also sacrificing on the other hills? I would say probably so, because that's what they did when they went to their high places. So he was really doing it probably both places. No, because the priestly one would be attached to the tabernacle. So that was established Yes. Yes. Now, it doesn't say, it doesn't, it doesn't really clarify to us whether or not he was making the sacrifice or whether he making it as in he went there and the priest did it for him. My guess and your guess, what do you think? If the tabernacle is there and the priests are there, when he showed up at Gibeon to do his sacrifice, what, who do you think took care of it? The priest, probably. So I would guess that when he went to Gibeon, he did it according to the law because the priests at the tabernacle would have ensured that. But when he went to the high places, you went in Rome? 
do as the Romans, right? And that is what he was really doing. He, this was a man, what I see in this, is this was a man who had his foot in the, in the world, one foot in the world, and one foot in God, and he was walking the fence. He was trying to please man and God. What do we know about that principle in life? It doesn't work, and thou shalt not do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a thou shalt not. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, one more point I want to give you on this, some specific commandments that they were aware of, has to do with Egypt. When God brought them out of Egypt, I want you to go uh, look. I think it's Deuteronomy 17, 16. I might be wrong on that, but... I also have 814 marked on here, but so I need somebody to look up both of the, I guess, do that for me, because there's a passage there. I think it's in 1716. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Good, thank you. Okay, Martha, read that for me. Yeah, it says, moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Wow. Okay, now don't lose that because we're going to use that in the next point over here about the commands for the king because that's the whole list on that. Deuteronomy 17, uh, 16 and 17 has all kinds of commands that he has told the king not to do and, and they are aware of this. So over here, let's write this though. Do not return to Egypt. Now, that's not just meaning a physical returning. It means don't go back to the ways of Egypt. Don't rely on Egypt. Don't count on them as your helper and your resource. Why? They're going to pull you away from God himself. Who are we supposed to call on in our time of need? God. Do we, are we to call on the world? Are we to call on, on people who are actually in opposition to God to help? You know, one of the things that irks me the most when I'm out on the streets of Austin is when I see religious organizations that claim to be Christian begging money. It absolutely infuriates me because I, I'm going, why are God's people acting as if we're beggars that God cannot provide from within his own church? What is wrong with us that we think that we should go to the world to help us? Is our, not God, is our God not strong enough, powerful enough? To see, is he not sovereign enough to see our needs? Can he not look upon us and say, my church is in this need, I will provide? Yeah. And so here's an example of that. Do not return to Egypt. Why? Because I brought you out of the land of slavery. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And, and actually throughout all of the scripture, from, from the day they are brought out of Egypt onward through all scripture, God makes a reference to Egypt, and it is considered a place of oppression, a place of sin, and a place of slavery that you've been redeemed from. Why would you go back? Right? The principle is, why would you go back? And what do we see Solomon do right early in his kingdom? He marries the Pharaoh's daughter doing what? It, when you marry, you, what, you're making a what? Making a covenant. Is, are they supposed to make covenants with other nations? No. Are you supposed to marry women from other, from other na nations? No. So he's broken two things right there. And now number three, do not return to Egypt. He also covered, he, minded, he managed to get three out of four right there. Amazing. Okay. So 
do you think this, knowing this, this context here about the, the Mosaic Covenant and some, just a few, this is not all of them, guys, but I'm just trying to point out some major ones. These few specific commandments that God had given to Israel, which, by the way, they were inundated with daily as a knowledge of them. Their priests and their teachings came daily. Almost every part and quality of their life entailed a practicing or an executing in some fashion or form their law so that they understood it was inundated. It was their, their faith system was their government. And so these people knew these things. Don't intermarry. Do not make covenants with other nations. Do not worship on the high places. And do not return to Egypt. They, they knew these. These were absolutely known to them. Now, who is God to Israel, and what did he want to be to them? First and foremost, and that is the most fundamental thing, God desired to be their king. Okay, there is a verse. Let's see if I brought it in here. Um, Yes, I think it might be before Deuteronomy 17. Go into Deuteronomy 17. We're going to look at this, and then we're going to say, what then did God command for their king once he gave them a king? And I want to ask you the question, why do you think he gave them a king? If God wanted to be their king, why did he allow them to have earthly kings? Okay. All right, someone go back. I think it was, wasn't it Nathan? I think it might have been Nathan. Look, go back and look at the at First uh, Samuel seventeen and the verses just before. Uh, it might have been even fourteen or fifteen in Deuteronomy. I just want to look at that together because it's very interesting. Yeah, Deuteronomy seventeen. No, oh well, there is one in First Samuel. First Samuel eight seven to twenty two. But I, I was kind of. Just going to keep you in Deuteronomy to make it simpler for you. You can look at all these others later on your own if you're, if you're wanting. And we are looking for Deuteronomy 17, 16 and 17. I want to look, though, where the place where it says that. They have not rejected you, Nathan. They have rejected me as their king. Do you guys remember that? Okay, so... Oh, oh so that one's in Samuel? Okay. Okay, it might be in the First Samuel 8 reference, which is 8, 7 to 22. Somebody pull that up. Okay. Wow. Okay. First Samuel 8, that probably must be 7, verse 7. Seven and eight, starting at seven. And if you can go all the way through 22 and get the whole storyline on that. And we've already looked at that one in last week or a week before, I think, in your homework. So that's why I'm kind of just loosely throwing these out because I know that they sound familiar to you. You've read them recently and it's not cold. You're not entering into cold water. Should have, at least should be a few, not too many cobwebs in there for you. Lisa's laughing at me. <laughs> oh yeah, they're, they're lost. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to pull in verses just the things that we've looked at, so that's why I'm trying not to go out beyond those boundaries. Okay, all right, so God was to be their king, so why did he let them have it? Well, first of all, he acknowledges, or, or he, can, he makes a statement, to, it's Nathan, right, that he said, what, 
was it Samuel? Okay, to Samuel. He says, you have, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. And then he says to them, give them what they want. Now, why does God do that? Okay, so what does that tell you about relationship with God, even as a nation who's under a covenant with him? Okay, he does not force himself on you. It is a free will relationship then that's going on between the, the person who has been given laws, although they are laws, and there could be consequences for breaking those laws, and yet he'll let you make a decision for yourself. That, does that apply in the covenant that we're still in with God? Absolutely. So you can still sin, and you can still disobey God, but yet God will still continue to bless. He'll continue to engage with you. And sometimes he'll even give you what is not good for you. What he knows is going to be a disaster. Now, here's where my little mind started running. I went, oh, this is very interesting. So, obviously, God knows the end from the beginning, right? Okay. If he knows the end from the beginning, and he knew Israel was going to ask for a king, and, then he, des- and he decided he would give that particular thing to them. Why? Besides the free will thing, why? What's going to be the end goal of what is Israel going to learn? What are you and I reading the history about this going to learn about getting things that we really shouldn't have? Okay. In this case, Jesus or God not not Jesus, God not being their their king and them having an earthly king, it actually led them into a form of captivity, didn't it? Okay, so it might be that God allowed Israel to have an earthly kingdom as such in order to show us that the best king is who? God himself, or Jesus, yes. Um, So if the the end goal for God is that we learn a, a spiritual principle, which I think is always God's goal, right, with us. He's trying to teach us because we're that slow, right? So if his end goal is for us to learn something by going through this process, because there's so much of what we're looking at right now in these different accounts where we're going, well, that must be good because he let him have it. Is that always the case? Okay, a lot of times it's not. Okay. Very good. So you, we need. Yeah. So you have to remember to filter some of the things that you guys are reading through that prism to understand that sometimes in Scripture God will say it's okay. Go ahead, let him have it. And then your mind is not to say immediately, oh well, then it must be good. It must be what God wanted all along, right? Because it clearly, in this case concerning a king, God had already said, they have rejected me. That is not a, oh, I want to bless them, let me give them a king. It's, well, I'm going to let them have what they want because they're insisting. They're refusing to understand that I am the best king for them. And ultimately what God wants to teach all of us is the best king is God himself. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So when we did, we did that. 
And we did that in Kings too. So what happened for us as we went through, we saw um, Solomon, God gives Solomon wisdom, right, in chapter 3. But then in chapter 4, immediately afterward, we see uh, Solomon's dominion, that it lacked nothing, that he had all these things. But in order to have, quote, have all these things and lack nothing, what did he do? He did just what God said. He took the best qualified people, the prettiest, the most skilled, the most intelligent of all the land. He brought them all in to serve him. Guess what? What, what were they not doing because they were now serving the king? They're not serving God in their own particular place, certainly not benefiting their own personal lives or their own family's lives. They're now benefiting the king and the kingdom, so to speak, right? But mostly the king. So we followed up chapter 3 with chapter 4 where we saw a demonstration of exactly what God said would happen if you get a king. If you get a king, he's going to take all of these people from you. He's going to make them slaves in his house, and he's, they're going to do his bidding. And that is exactly what was demonstrated to us. So although we could be looking at this just kind of, uh, oh, well, this is what he's doing, and now he's doing this, and now he's setting up his kingdom, and now he's putting things in order, and look how wise he is. And the, the real message underneath there, the subliminal message is, see, just like God said, just like God warned about. Interesting, huh? All right, so let's go back and look very quickly at the king. The king, uh, God's commands for their king concerning how he was to behave, right? In Deuteronomy 17, look at verses 16 and 17. And let's just list those three or four things there that he's not to do. Somebody read that. Read the whole passage, and that way we'll get the whole thing out. Yeah, um, well, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, so must not appoint a foreigner as king. That's one point. Uh, not, and they're not, he's not to multiply what? Horses. Multiply horses. Uh, not to multiply what else? Wives. <laughs> um, and he shall not, what was the right word? assess or amass for himself what silver and gold he shall not increase silver and gold I you know I tell you already I'm I'm looking at this and going okay if that's all you do for yourself is make yourself a list on the things that they knew and what God had already told them not to do or that they were to do you had those things before you and went through and read this, these, this account, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you would be going, 
whoa, what a mess, right? Tell me, wh- why did I include First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles? What did we learn last week about that? They were all written as one book initially. They were written as, as a collection. And as a matter of fact, the original title of them was The Four Books of the Kings, I think is what it said, right? And it was First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. So the original writing of them in the Septuagint also, they had them as one book. We later in history broke them down into four. So when you study what we're studying right now, you do need to... Uh, combine First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles together in order to get the full picture of everything. I think that was very interesting. Okay, one more point I just want to mention here is the the idea of when it was written. What did we learn last week about Second Kings twenty five, which is the last entry in the Second Kings? What is what is the timeline for the writing of this particular book? Do you remember when it falls on a timeline? So they're already in the Babylon. Do you know how far into Babylon they are? Who's the king that's mentioned in there? Jehoiakim. Okay. So they are basically about halfway through their Babylonian captivity, right? How long was the captivity of Babylon? In 70 years, right? It happened after what we studied in Ezekiel occurred. The glory of God left the tabernacle. The people are taken captive right, into Babylon, and now they're there for 70 years. And halfway into the middle of that, the last entry in First Second Kings is given to us about Jehoiakim. And it, so at least they're that far into that captivity. It could be beyond that a little bit also, but at least halfway through. So when is it written? About halfway, halfway through. Their Babylonian captivity. Well, this we don't know. We talked about that also last week. You go back and listen to the DVD. Yeah, because it'll. I I pulled out some things. We talked about what we have in the books are clues. Tell me what you now you guys can remember from last week about who the author is. There you go. Someone who had access to the royal records. So in other words, someone who worked for the king probably within the palace itself, close to those libraries which store all these records because one of the things that we have already seen as we've looked at these things is sometimes one set of records seems to be recorded and then another time another set of records is recorded and they don't always completely jive. It's because of the calculating that was going on by these two sets of records. Some of the records are now lost to us in history completely. We don't even have them anymore. So the only record we have is the word of God, which is really cool. But these, the, the, whoever it is that wrote this was probably a nobleman or a scribe or uh, someone in, in, in a high position, even amongst the Jewish nation, right? The leader among the Jews. He was educated, right? And he had access to all these records. The Chronicles, he often refers to the Chronicles as well, the Chronicles of the Kings. So he had, he had access to those. That's all we know about the author. We also know that he wrote during the Babylonian time frame because he makes a mention, the last entry is about Jeho- Jehoiakim. Okay? 
All right, now, so that takes us to, con we're good in context. Again, I, I love it when we get that reviewed again because now when we start to talk again, there should be no surprises. When you see something, you should be able to recognize the problem with it, right? <laughs> Pretty easily. Now, one thing I want to do, though, for fun, because, I, I, again, we may not get through everything we did in First and Second Kings, or in First Kings, rather, and Second Chronicles, um, as far as looking at every paragraph and outlining everything. But we're going to get the general theme down, no problem. But I want to focus on one point from last week's homework that we didn't get to dive into much that I thought was really profound. And that was this, this uh, t time when the Lord appears to Solomon and he asks for wisdom. Because I think there's a truth principle in there for you and I as God's children that needs to be just developed a little bit. And all we're going to do is discuss it. You don't have to have you know, uh, scripture references or anything like that in your head, but scripture should be the, the basis on which you're making your, your remarks, okay? So I want to go and look here and start in verse 5 of First Kings 3. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. What did we say was at Gibeon? The tabernacle, the appointed place of God's worship, where God, people could come to him, they could worship, they could sacrifice. Okay, so, and he called it the great high place. Um, in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God asked, what, ask what you wish me to give you. Now, that is a profound thought. So I was listening this week to different kinds of sermons by different pastors, and I got partly in partly tickled, but also partly annoyed. <laughs> but, you know, it, one of the things one of the guys was saying, he says, don't you all just wish you had a, a genie bottle you could rub and then out would pop the genie and he'd say, what do you wish? And you'd say, you know, I'll, I'll ask for three things and, and one of them will be, can I ask for two more? And, you know, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And we all, and I got tickled about it. But on the other hand, I thought he didn't go on then to, I think, expound on the, the principle of what's really being revealed to us here about God and his relationship with, in the case here, Solomon at the moment, but with all of us individually, we each have this relationship with God. So he's asked what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness. Now, what is the word loving kindness re in re reference to? Covenant. covenant. It's a covenant word. To your servant David, my father, according to, to as he has walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have re uh, reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. In other words, he's acknowledging that he is the beneficiary of the covenant that God made with David. Okay, and so because of David's relationship with God and David's covenant with God, now Solomon finds him in a very beneficial position. He has now been given the, the throne, the kingdom. Um, and he says, now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. Yet I am a little child. I do not know how to go or out or to come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are so many that they are uh, too big to be numbered or counted. So because of this, because there's so many people, and because I consider myself to be a little child, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And it was pleasing to the Lord. And so God gave him his answer. So I want to go back and just look at this. How did he please the Lord? Tell me some 
let's just write them down. How did he please the Lord? Because I just want you to see some of these principles. Okay, so first he acknowledged God's faithfulness. In loving kindness, I'm going to put it that way, in loving kindness. Okay. I'm going to put Solomon. How did Solomon please God? That's our question. Because is, is, it, not our, is it not our desire to please God? Don't, do you want to be like Solomon and be able to have the Lord say, ask whatever you want? And it shall be given unto you? Yeah, me too. So let's, let's talk about this. The first thing we see is he acknowledges God, that God is the one who, who gives living, loving kindness, and it is God that is the uh, source of that, that kindness, that loving kindness. Okay, So acknowledging God on the whole is one of the first things that he did, and that pleased the Lord. So the, the first place we have to start, if we want to have these kinds of blessings from God, is we have to start first and foremost with an acknowledgement of who God is. Now, we can expound on this. This is just one point about loving kindness, but think of all the things that you should know about who your God is. What are some things that you feel are absolute essentials in your relationship with knowing who God is? Okay, that he is faithful, that he is, he is your creator. And what does that imply then? Since he's your creator, then what? Yeah, he's in charge. He's the one that, is, that put you here. He's the one that gave you life and breath and put you, placed you on planet Earth. And therefore, you, you owe him worship. You owe him thanksgiving. You owe him obedience, right? So acknowledging that he is the creator is, a, is a, essential. What else? What else do you think is an essential quality that you know about your God Okay, that he's, that by nature, one of his qualities is that he is love, that he operates from love, that he works from the perspective of love, right? Now, balance that for us, because not only is he loving, but what else is he? He's righteous. He's, a, he's the judge of, of unrighteousnesses and unloving kinds of behaviors. So on the one hand, he's full of love, but on the other hand, he's righteous. Right? He's, all right. So, okay. So we'll stop there. We know that we have, we have to acknowledge who God is first and foremost, and that's what Solomon did. He approached God. First of all, after he finished lifting his skirt upon every other high place and hill, which he was not supposed to be doing, he, he, his, for whatever reason, to his mind came the senses, I need to go to Gibeon. I need to go to the appointed high place of God. And I need to see God at his tabernacle, his house. And he does this. And in doing that, this pleased God. So what is another thing that he did to please God? He sought God at God's appointed place. Okay? Okay, I, I just put house, but that's, that's enough. He sought God. What else did he do there? There you go. He was humble. 
How did he express humbleness? I'm just a child. I can't do this. Who am I? Right? And so he, he approached God going, God, these people. Look, I, I, every time I walk in this classroom, Lord, who am I that I should be standing up here? I, most of you have ten times the amount of degrees and education and knowledge and, and real wisdom and life experiences and way more than I. Who am I? right, that I should be here. It's true. And so, really, in a moment of real rationality, Solomon stood there and considered, he reflected in sobriety of mind the idea that he was going to be the leader of these great people. And what do you think he was doing at that moment inside his spirit? Shaking a little, quaking, thinking, I don't know, how can I do this, right? We also have a little history on this, too. Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Carrie. Also acknowledging that the only reason he's on the throne is because of the covenant. Right, which is what we just talked about. So it's kind of this balance of, first of all, understanding he's only there because of loving kindness of God between God and David to begin with. So it wasn't even something he did that got him where he is. It's something that God and David had a relationship, and he's getting the benefit of. And he, now he's... Wised up, he shows up to the place that God appointed. And then while, and once he's there, he, he approached God in a, in a spirit of humility. Um, let me look here real quick. Hold, hold on. Well, this is very interesting. He was being obedient to God in many areas, was he not? So on the one hand, you know, when it opens up there in that particular chapter, it says... Um, Solomon loved the Lord, but then there's a word we highlighted greatly, except. So although he loved the Lord, except he also worshipped on the high places. So he was a conflicted man. He really seemed to have his foot in both places, in, the, in things of God and the things of the world. And he couldn't quite decide which one he was uh, having a true alliance with yet. And so... What's interesting to me is, what does this tell you then about people who, well, first of all, people who God might choose to put in positions of leadership? They can be flawed, seriously flawed. Well, okay, yes, okay. Well, maybe some of you are. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, yes, exactly. We are flawed. We are flawed to the core. But God, what God says, I mean, because for most of us, as we approach a study on Solomon, what we're looking at is a man that in the back of our minds and what we've been taught from Sunday school years all the way up is this guy was full of wisdom. There was no one greater than him. He, had, he was so smart. He was so full of wisdom and intelligence. And, and for me, i.e., that meant he had this deep, abiding relationship with God and yet in what we're looking at in the reality of the scriptures is not so much it seems like he he kind of wants to and it seems like early in his his walk or early in his kingdom ruling he was making uh, attempts to but it also seemed to me like he was trying to he was attempting to please God but also man at the same time mm -hmm. Lisa
Yes. Even though we benefit from our ancestors and those that had loving relationships with God, it's still a personal relationship. It boils down to you must make the personal commitment to God because you can't ride on the skirt tail of your father, David. You have to have your own personal relationship with God of faithfulness and of humility. And in, the case, in this case, he came to God humbly asking for something, right, in humility before God, realizing that he was unable to do it. Could there have been motives that were, that maybe some were pure and some were not so pure behind that? What might be the pure motives behind that? What did you think he really wanted when it, when it comes to ruling the people? He wanted to make sure he got it right. He wanted to do a good job, right? Okay. Uh, and, uh, and do it for God. I mean, that it would not just be man's reasoning, but it would be, he said, to discern from good and evil. And we, we studied in the book of Hebrews what that really meant, that had a, to, a knowledge of, of a discerning between what's right and wrong, truly right and wrong. And who, and who gets to determine what's right and wrong? God, not man's thinking, God's thinking. But on the other hand, there can also be a, another kind of motivation in that. A person that wants to do good might also have their own other kinds of motives. What would they be? What would they be based on? On pride. So on the one hand, we might be thinking he's being humble here. But on the other hand, maybe it's not so much humility. However, God does respond in a positive way. Now, there's the dilemma in the interpretation of it. Why do you think God responded to Solomon in the way that he did? Was it for the sake of Solomon alone? This was for the sake of God's... What had God promised to Abraham? I will make you a great nation. I will place you upon the land, right? I will, I will multiply your people, right? And one day I will send you a seed, so there were promises that were also made in previous covenants, in this case, the one with Abraham, where, where God is responding to Solomon's request, but do you think it could also be that he was responding in part as a response to what he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And David, <laughs> and the answer is yes. Because God had, there, there could be a multifat. this is, does you, can you see how complicated this can get in how you might interpret this? In the end, God is going to make it clear to us, I think, where, where Solomon stands with him because he's going to say what he thinks about Solomon's relationship with him. But as we are going along and progressing to get to that place, what we are doing is we are observing things. And what I'm hoping to do is to help you and I as inductive Bible study students, to not just jump to the automatic conclusion through presuppositions that have been given to us from childhood. What we want to do is look at the, at the facts, weigh all the possibilities, filter it through what we know and what we see him doing, and be honest about what he's actually doing, compare it to what God said he should or should not do. Was he being obedient? Was he not? And, and all these things are going to help help us to come to a, a good understanding of who this man is and what God is doing in him and through him and why. Yes? And God is giving him a good gift. Yes. To use properly, you know, and so had he used it properly. Yes. 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 
And I wish I had it on, on me because I did this for myself personally. But I went through and took this then to the next level about on the subject of prayer. Because I thought, well, if, if God can appear to Solomon and say, ask whatever you wish, and I'll give it. And in the sermon, this guy says, so what would you ask for? And Kay asked us that question in our homework this week, right? And, and I want you to go to the next step and say, is it possible? Does God still do that? Does God appear to you really daily? Every time you seek his face, does not God say to you, ask what you will, and it shall be given unto you? Are there scriptures that say that? Now, what is the caveat to why and when God responds positively and gives you exactly what you ask for? There you go. Ask anything in my name, and it shall be given unto you, right? So what does it mean to ask in God's name, and do you think that's what Solomon did here? Okay, the motive. So it looks to me like his motive was good because he had a concern for Israel. Now, whether that concern was out of pride or out of humility, either way, it still was concern for Israel. Who's God's uh, apple of God's eye? Who's the apple of God's eye? Israel. Who is God's most profound instrument upon planet Earth even to this very day? His chosen instrument to be what? What is their purpose? To be a light to the world, to show who? To declare the glories of God. So, so okay, he's got that. What else? Did you have anything else on that? There you go. Excellent point. I hadn't looked at James, but that is, a good, and I should have because we've done that study, right? That's, ex that's a very good point, Glenn. Ask with the right motives. Ask for the right reasons. Ask according to my name. And according to my name means with a bowed knee before me, knowing that I will do what? What does God do in the, in the affairs of all man, always? He accomplishes what? His will. So even though that there are times when God will give you stuff that you're not supposed to, that's the, on one side, but other times he gives it to you also because he wants to accomplish something in it. And his, and his goal always is for our good, right? That ultimately in the end, men, individual men, will come to him and bow their knee. So his desire is for salvation for each one, that none should perish, no, not one right? So what an amazing little discourse we had there, and we didn't get a chance to really elaborate, and we still really only touched on it. I'm hoping it'll give you a chance to go back and reevaluate. When you pray, it's a profound thought. God will give you anything that you ask for if you ask for it in his name. Yes. Very good. That is exactly, okay, now that brings me to another point. Very good segue. Thank you, Martha. All right, I did, I did an interesting research, and you guys are going to, John Calvin, we all know 
Calvin and Calvinism and its controversy and all. However, he has some wisdom. And I found a, 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 an, an insight on something that he wrote that I thought I'd share with you. Because one of the things Kay brings up at the end of our homework lesson this week is talking about the gifts that God gives us. And are you using them wisely? And how are you using them? And what are you doing with them? And do you recognize that your gifts come from God, right? Um, and for me, the question came into mind that, does God only gift the church? Okay, no. And it depends on what you mean by gift, right? When, when God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, was it the kind of wisdom and understanding that comes from um, having a spiritual relationship with God, or did he just give him wisdom? How did we see him demonstrating his wisdom to us in... Okay, he did make... Okay, on the ca okay, so what we've got, though, is two things going on here. And this is what I, let me just read it, because it'll make better sense if he says it than if I say it. Okay, this is interesting. This is uh, uh, from a book that he wrote called Institutes of the Christian Religion. True wisdom and understanding are exclusively for those who have the mind of Christ. Now, this is me saying this. And I pulled it out of 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 16. Now, that's spiritual wisdom. But there's another kind of wisdom, just plain wisdom and understanding for living life and governing people and doing jobs and crafting beautiful things for the temple and and you know leading bible study if you there are there have been teachers i've sat under that i later come to see these people don't even know the lord you know but yet they're up there and they're preaching a sermon and leading people to christ they, they have wisdom without a relationship with god it's possible i'm just throwing this out there for you guys to have this because you have to understand there are people who've got great wisdom and great skills but it does not necessarily mean that they have relationship with God. And you have to consider this. So here's what Calvin says. I feel pleased with the well-known saying, which has been borrowed from the writings of Augustine. Now, we know who Augustine is, right? That man's natural gifts were corrupted by sin. We know that, right? Man's natural gifts, our natural skills, talents, um, strengths were corrupted by sin. And... This is very important. His supernatural gifts were withdrawn because of sin. Okay, so in other words, on the day when Adam and Eve sinned, what left the garden and the presence of man? Who left? God. So, and from that moment forward, what was God's mission? To restore man into correct relationship with God, to return according to the New Testament to give us what? What is the sign of the new what is the seal of the new covenant? The Holy Spirit to have God abiding within us. We've been looking this week at the building of a temple. What was going to be in the temple? God's spirit. Do you remember in the middle of one of those chapters he said God gives a conditional statement? What was the condition upon which God said I promise I will abide with 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 you there amongst my people as long as you do what? keep my commandments. Why? Because he's still operating off this Mosaic covenant with them. It's a national uh, fixture. The temple was a national structure, but it also has a spiritual picture within it for you and I. And that is that God desires to live within us as his people. That's why Cain then took us into 1 Peter and these other verses that we looked at to see that, that we are now God's building, right? They had the temple, the physical temple, but now we are the temple of God 
in the new covenant. God, in the Old Testament, he dwelt within that physical building, the temple in Jerusalem. But now where does he abide? Within us. All of that started by a brokenness that occurred at the moment in the Garden of Eden. So that's what he starts off. He says, man's natural gifts were corrupted by sin and his supernatural gifts withdrawn. Uh, meaning by supernatural gifts, the light of faith and righteousness. So he's going to clarify a little bit to you what the difference is between wisdom that just is natural and intuitive and that God gives to man and the idea of supernatural, spiritual, intuitive or, or uh, wisdom. Okay, so he says that kind of wisdom, that supernatural, is the light of faith and righteousness. And you only get those by the abiding spirit, okay? Which would have been sufficient for the attainment of heavenly life and everlasting life. Man, when he withdrew his allegiance to God, was deprived of the spiritual gifts by which he had been raised to the hope of eternal salvation. Hence it follows that he is now in exile from the kingdom of God. If you're apart from God, you're in exile to God. We all know that, that people who do not have relationship with God, do not have the spirit of God, they are in darkness, right? They are not a part of the kingdom yet. Hence it follows that he is now in exile from the kingdom of God, so that all things which pertain to the blessed life of the soul are extinguished in him until he recover them by the grace of regeneration. So here he's, he's making it really clear. The way you get that kind of wisdom, which is spiritual wisdom and spiritual discernment, is by the regeneration of the Spirit and God putting his Spirit. Do, do you remember when, what God with, did with David and what he did with Saul? Saul had the Spirit, and, and this is the Old Testament operation of the Spirit, so don't try to compare it to the New. But in the Old Testament, God would anoint his kings, and he, what would he do? His Spirit would abide on them and in them, Right? And what happened with Saul when he kept rebelling against God and being disobedient? And he had not made that commitment to God, obviously. What happened? The spirit left. And then he groaned for it, right? And David had to come in and play music for him and soothe his soul. Okay, so then David, when he became king, he was anointed. And what, do you, what did he have abiding with him? The spirit of God, which rested upon him. Okay, so among these are faith love to God, charity towards our neighbor, the study of righteousness and holiness, all these, when restored to us by Christ, are to be regarded as advantageous and above nature. If so, we infer that they have previously been abolished. On the other hand, soundness of mind and integrity of heart, they're at the same time withdrawn, and it is this which constitutes the corruption of natural gifts. So when the spirit is removed, even though you still have natural gifts, they're not as, they're not as heightened. They're not as empowered, right? The, the, the regeneration by the spirit strengthens your natural talents. Make some of us able to actually stand in front of a classroom, even though we don't have much education. <laughs> okay. For although there is still some residue of intelligence and judgment as well as will, we cannot call a mind sound. We can't call a mind sound and entire, uh, and entire which is both weak and Im immersed in darkness. So people can have some strengths, but yet without the spirit, they're still in darkness. They can still operate and accomplish great tasks, but they would even be higher tasks, higher accomplishments when they have the Holy Spirit is what he's saying. Therefore, since 
um, reason by which a man discerns between good and evil and by which he understands and judges is a natural gift. It could not be entirely destroyed. So you do have those natural intuitive abilities to discern between good and evil, right? But, there, but it's not at the level it needs to be or should be when this presence of God's spirit is there. But being partly weakened and partly corrupted, a shapeless ruin is all that remains. I thought that was really interesting. I'm going to send this guy this to you. Um, he says, um, the definition now given is complete, but there are several points which require to be explained. He has gone on and explains more about that light and dark and the spirit. He says, but we divided the soul into intellect and will. And we will now inquire into the power of the intellect. And so he goes on and talks about the intellect. And I thought this was very interesting read. And I'll let you guys read it and kind of drink it in for yourself. It's easier for you to read it and ponder it and reread things that you get stumped on. His, his flow in language is different because he's writing from ancient days, right? Um, and But I see so much insight when I read this to what we're looking at with Solomon where on the one hand, God did give him wisdom and understanding and the ability to judge God's people rightly. Why? Because God had a vested interest in Israel being a success and in and Israel seeing the true righteousness ruling from the, from the throne. He wanted to be their king. And at this point, Solomon had asked the one correct thing. He had acknowledged God is the source. He had acknowledged that that there was an appointed place, so he was willing to bow his knee to God's appointed place, and he went there, although he had been other places. Did God appear to him at any of those other high places? No, only at the place that God had assigned. And then he, he was humble when he asked God for the correct thing. He asked for wisdom. I want you to remember back with David. When David was training up uh, Solomon as a young child, and when, and when David was giving Solomon his last words there in chapter 1 of 1 Kings, what, were the th what was one of the most important things to David that Solomon do? Or or let's go back and look at it together. Uh, let's see, was it chapter 2? Yeah, okay, chapter 2. Because right there at the beginning, uh, he is... Talking to him, um, keep the keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in all His ways. Um, and in verse six, he says, "Act according to your wisdom, and do not let this man's gray hair go down to Sheol in peace." That was in verse six. He talks about showing kindness to those who are friends to the throne. Correct. And in 10 to 12, he says again uh, about another person that needed to have judgment. So do you see, this is, uh, um, Glenn, the, the balance between love and righteousness that he is actually talking about. Show love, show kindness when it's appropriate, but also judge the, un, the unrighteous and the things which are evil. And again, he says, for you are a wise man and you will know what you ought to do to him. How do you think it makes you feel when your mom, dad, or someone that you love or admire, and they say, you are so smart, you are so wise. I, I love to talk to you because you always help me straighten things out. Right? So here's David saying, Solomon, you're so wise. Use your wisdom to lead God's people. He says that those were his parting words to his son. Is it any wonder that when he got into the presence of the Lord and realized his dad is now gone, 
that he asked God for wisdom? It was the one thing that his father kept exhorting him in. Use wisdom. Be wise in the way that you, that you handle your ruling as over God's people. So he requested exactly what his father had exhorted him in and had kind of pumped him up. And they say, you know, as parents, that's one of our jobs is to try to exhort our children to, to, to see the right kinds of values in their life, you know. And to, so when you exhort them about education or you exhort them about how they love other people, how they serve their, their fellow man and how they um, are kind to people and how, how they show respect to authority, all those kinds of things that you're teaching your children and exhorting them in, your words matter. And when you pass away, how many of you have been at funerals? And you hear someone stand from up front and talk about my mom, my dad, my uncle, my friend, and these were the things I remember. And they always seem to remember the things that they were exhorted that really had a positive influence in them, right? So David had this positive influence with, with his son Solomon. And he said, use your wisdom. You are a wise man. So when the time came, Solomon asked the Lord. And my exhortation to you in this and why I wanted to go back was, you too can ask of God for wisdom. And he says, ask anything in my name. If, you're, if what you're asking for is a wisdom to honor him and to get on board with him, his agenda, whatever that might be in your world, maybe it's a certain program or a certain ministry or a certain mission within your family and how you want to lead your family or, or nurture your neighborhood or your friends, if you're doing it for God, you ask for anything in my name and it shall be given unto you. Isn't that an amazing thought? We, we look at Solomon and we think, wow, he was so lucky. No, you can, be, you can be lucky too. All you have to do is ask God and he will give. It's not really luck. It's a blessing that God has promised. He's promised it to anyone who will approach him and bow their knee and ask him humbly. And if you ask in his name, he will give it. Isn't that awesome? Just has to be for the right motive. And that's why God gave him exactly what he asked for. Not because he was so great, not because he was so smart, not because he was so uh, perfect. It was all because he simply asked the right thing, which pleased God. And God said, you bet, you can have it. Awesome, huh? Okay, so I can't ask for a new purse or a new car. or I'm going I'm to jumping up from purses to cars. It's a big jump there. Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, let's go on. Now, so now we've laid that foundation down. Now we're going to very quickly go through the homework because most of it's pretty, I think, self-explanatory, but there are some little things here and there that I think are real interesting. So let's start with chapter 5 of 1 Kings. And let's start with our theme. On the whole, in chapter 5 of 1 Kings, what it was going on in that particular chapter? Okay, he's procuring or, or um, uh, securing supplies necessary for the building of the temple, correct? In doing that, um, who does he approach? Hiram. And now tell me what you know about Hiram. Who is Hiram? King of Tyre. And where is Tyre? What country is that in? Lebanon. Is Lebanon part of Israel? Oh, whoops. Okay. So 
again, does this appear to you to be any kind of a problem in this? Okay, and tell me why. He's making a covenant with other nations. He's being a beggar on the streets of Austin, Texas, wearing a jacket that says, I belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Please give me money. I'm in great need. That's what Solomon did in this situation, in my thinking. Yes, he was paying for it, and he does so. So, in the process, when you go through all the details of how he handled this, what do you see in Solomon? Great wisdom. He really did have in, intelligence and discernment and understanding on how to process and, and to accomplish the things that he wanted to get done that he needed to get done. But in doing so, what did he have to do? Or what was he doing? He was compromising the, the things of God. And he was actually directly violating the law of God. The things which God had said, do not do this. He actually did. In order, so if you want to bring this to today, how do you relate that as far as people who sometimes say, well, I'm going to do this mission, this project, this activity for God, but you know what, I'm doing it. I'm using the company's paper and printer, and I'm, you know, I'm basically robbing someone else in order to accomplish it. I, I, the one thing that really came to my mind, it's like, for instance, I think that, that in this room it's safe to say we understand abortion is, is murder, and that when a person is so angered, Glenn's back there nodding his head. When a person is so angry, however, Glenn, you're mad at that abortion doctor, right? How are you going to stop him? Oh, darn, no gun? <laughs> okay, so because why? If you took a gun and shot the abortion clinic, it's murder. It's again, it's murder. So in other words, you can't commit a crime in order to do a good thing. I understand saving the life of a baby is a good thing, but you can't commit a crime or violate a law of God's principles. You can't break his commandments in order to accomplish what you think is something really good and mighty for God, right? Is that a pretty good an analogy in your mind? I mean, that's a profound one. But now you can take it down into your life. Are there things in your life that you might be compromising? You, in your mind, you've convinced yourself, but it's for, the, it's for the greater good. It is for a good purpose. Solomon's building of a temple was awesome. And the idea that he wanted the best in the world, he wanted the finest uh, cedars of Lebanon, and he wanted the gold, and he wanted the brass, he wanted the bronze, he wanted the fine linen, he wanted, he wanted everything for it. Those were all good I wants, right? For God's glory. But how he got it, does it matter? Yes, it matters. It's very interesting to me how subtle this is in the text, though. This author who's writing all the way down here in history, while they're in the midst of their Babylonian captivity because they violated so many of God's laws that they were kicked off the land, he's, he's looking back and he's telling you the story of Solomon. This is how Solomon came to his throne. This is how Solomon built the temple, right? He procured all these things for his res as resources, but he did it how? By making a covenant with a, with a nation that God said, do not do that. Okay, that's a really good one. We went into Samuel and looked at that. Let me answer this question first, Lisa. 
Yes, they did. Good question. You tell me what do you think was, that's a great thing to ponder on. And I thought on that one for quite a while. And I thought to myself, again, back to the, the man on street story who's wearing his Jesus crown and saying, I belong to Jesus. Please give me money. Would God have provided for Israel all the things they needed from even within? Absolutely, he could have. Yeah, in the land of with so much. What do you think? What, and what might be some motivation behind that? When you're considering, remember one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why Israel had a king to begin with, and need, and we're, we're going to be building this, this, was because they refused God, right? And when they looked at the other worlds, was another reason they wanted a king. They looked at other nations around them. They all had kings, and they wanted to be like the other kingdoms. That's what the scripture tells us. So, yeah, I think a part of it was a lusting after the things of the world. Even though he paid for it. Yeah, it looks on the surface. If you don't dig okay. deep in this story. Okay, so that kind of just tells me we shouldn't be doing business with Iraq or Iran. <laughs> well, and that's another, a whole different storyline. But the church, the church, you know, what we need to do, one of the things... One of the things that we talked about early in this class was um, the life lessons we're wanting to try to look at, remember? And I, had, I, drew, I gave you some comparisons, but the comparison was we're looking at a king and a kingdom, right? And, but in the New Testament, how are we going to make personal applications with these things that look like it's just ancient history? Well, we're going to bring it forward. We're going to say, well, our kings are like our church leaders, uh, the, the people of the land are like us, the parishioners, right? And we're looking at the church as being the kingdom. And so us today in our churches with our pastors, what are we learning as we observe Solomon and Israel, the nation, and their kingdom and the way that they did business? What are we learning? What are we learning today? We should not even be lusting after the things of the world. We don't need to be like the world. Solomon started in a good place. He got humble before God and asked at the right place and in the right manner. And he happened to ask exactly what God wanted for Israel and his, and his people. So God said, sure, you can have that. But we, are, we, the church today, do business with the world in many ways that we should not. We need to reevaluate what we're doing. Maybe the blessings in our churches are not coming to fruition like we want them to because we're dancing with the devil. Yes. For his own personal and stuff, yes. If you study all of Kings and we get through to Ezra and that, this becomes a major theme. Quit building your house and build my house. Right. That's what he says over and over. Yes, again. yes. So what you see from the very beginning is, is his priorities are already, he had his father's palace. That's not what he wants. He wants something better. Yes. And that's something to know. Even though this has the temple in it, it is the house of the Lord. Right. Things, we still are seeing some of those cracks that we talked about in the foundation. 
I just love precept students because you get because this is where we want to get to. We want to get to the place where we've got enough, we've got enough context that we can now evaluate every piece of it and break it down and go, okay, I can see the problems now in this. Where before we would read this account and we would go, yay, good for Solomon. You know? But now we're going, whoa, whoa, time out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There was, I want to find the place where it says, um, Go to chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. And then the parallel to that is uh, in Second Chronicles. It might be 1 and 2, Second Chronicles 1 and 2. Nope, that's not it. Hold on a second. I've got it marked. Here it is. It's 2 Chronicles 2, 17 and 18. Okay, the ones that he assigned, since you brought that up, Carrie, let's jump to that right now so we can, because we're going to run out of time. We don't want to miss discussion on this. You know, we talk about having an illegal alien problem in America today. Again, just as Solomon said, there's nothing new under heaven. And guess what they had? An illegal aliens in their land, and they had a problem with them, right? Um, tell me when you read, let me just read it for you. So in, in 2 Chronicles 2, starting in verse 17, Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel following the census which his father David had taken. So the census was to see how many citizens were there, Israeli citizens, right? And then in the process of that, he found out that there was 153,600 153, were found to be aliens. Okay, and then so what did he do? He appointed 70,000 of them to carry loads, 80,000 to quarry stones in the mountains, and 3,600 to supervise and to make the people work. So who was the people that were going to be working? Aliens. The illegal aliens. Well, I mean, there's going to be, maybe, yes, and there may be some others, but, but, the point in this was, remember, Kay asked us to go back and look at the building of the tabernacle, right? When the tabernacle was built, who did the work? Only Israel. Talked about the tribes of Judah, the tribes of Dan, and then all the people. And what was really cool about that was when it came to their supplies, their need of supplies, and their need of manual labor, what did they actually have to do at some point? Stop bringing stuff, guys. We got too much. You're too generous. Don't you wish our churches had that problem today? Don't you know our pastors wish we had that problem? We could say, guys, hold back on your giving this week. Hang it. Just put it in the bank. Store up some interest and give it next week because we're, we're overloaded. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing for, for our churches to have to say? There is application about this, but we know that when Israel was in the wilderness and they built the tabernacle, they had come out of slavery, right? And they, but they brought with them booty that, the, that 
that supernaturally God gave to them through the through the people that were sending them out just leave just leave these plagues were enough they're like please just take my money take my gold go right so they came out with a, a lot of things that were given to them by those who had enslaved them and from that they were able to because they had this now in their possession it was theirs to have but now they gave it back to God right? And they had more than they needed so much that, that Moses had to send out a edict to the people, stop bringing stuff. We've got more than we need. Isn't that amazing? But with Solomon, what happened? He did not, bring, he did not request of the people to give an offering to the house of God that we know of. That's not recorded here. And what he did instead was when the king of Lebanon, the king of Tyre, came, he sent a, 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 a representative, right, when he found out that Solomon had been anointed king. And he wanted then to uh, build a relationship, and he saw an opportunity. He goes, ooh, ooh, this guy's here. He's right in my face. I remember my dad's house has got all this beautiful wood, right, from Lebanon. So he began to negotiate a deal. And instead of asking Israel to be the one to build their God's temple, he negotiates a deal with a foreign nation to import things. And, and, the, and when, he, when it comes time for the work, instead of the laborers being Israel, building it for their God, who builds it? The illegal aliens. Now, why do I call them illegal aliens? What? I, first of all, I looked at the word aliens I de, by definition, and it says strangers, sojourner, foreigners, those lacking inheritance rights. And basically, the, the end of this, if you look, somebody look at Exodus 23, look at verse 23 and 24. Somebody look that up and read that for us. And someone else look at Joshua 11. 11 to 15. There's two verses here I want us to read together because I want you to see what God, what the law was. It's not up here, but I want you to see what the law had said to Israel before they came, when they were going to come into the land, what they were supposed to do concerning the aliens that were living upon their land that God was giving to them, right? Somebody read that. Who's got um, Exodus 23? Yeah, 24, 23 and 24. Wow. So you shall utterly destroy them and break their sacred pillars. Now, we've already talked earlier about the high places. Had they done that? No. Instead, they joined them in worshiping on the high mountains. And, and apparently, did they uh, utterly destroy them like they were told to? No. Okay, let's go to Joshua 11, 11 to 15 next. Oh, I know, I know, exactly, and we didn't get to go back and look at that. In 2 Kings 25, 27 to 30, there's all these things. That, well, we saw it here in Deuteronomy 17. Do, do not uh, appoint a foreign king, do not multiply horses, do not multiply wives. And then what does he do? He does all those things, every one of them. Yeah, and then the king does exactly what they were told not to do. Every single thing that he said don't do. So let's read Joshua 11, 11 to 15. 
Who's got that? Good. Okay, so that was it. Just as Moses, the servant of God, had commanded, he utterly destroyed them with the edge of the sword. He annihilated them so that, I think it goes on to say that not, there was no one left breathing. But then they took the booty of the land which God gave to them for them to use for, for themselves. So, again, now, you know, for, for those who ha have a, a heart for the people on this land, remember that God told Abraham all the way back at the beginning when he was going to give them this land that he gave them a stay of execution at that point for 400 years. Be and that's how long Israel was going to be in their captivity in Egypt, right? They would be down in Egypt for that long. Why? Because the sins of the Amorites had not yet been fulfilled. There was not, it had not come to its full state of rejection of God. And when we go back in history and look at that, there were even priests, God Most High, who was it, Melchizedek? was king of Salem, and, and he was a, a, a priest of God Most High during the days of Abraham. He was still there preaching Yahweh, right? And so we know that the word of God was going out in the land, but they had not come to a place of complete rejection. Well, 400 years later, they had. And so that's when God said, when you go on the land, utterly destroy them. That's why, because of their great sin, their, their deep-seated sin. So God said, go in. Utterly annihilating. So if there are, if there are 5,000 uh, or 153,600 aliens still in the land that they were able to count, what does that tell you about what Israel did or did not do? They did not utterly destroy them. Do you think this became a problem for Israel? <laughs> what happens... Think about what's going on in Israel even today. Who's on the land of Israel with them? The Palestinians. And I know this is a, could be a controversial subject in some circles, hopefully not in ours. But what is the problem with uh, the, uh, those of other nations who want to operate under a different God, under a different system of worship, and under a different set of rules? What's the problem with them living next door to you within your own country what's the problem with that they caught they be really you have your your own enemy living right next door to you i remember when we visited israel the first time how profound it was to me when when we were walking in jerusalem and we were in the part of the city where everything was so clean and so orderly and so modern do you remember this too martha and then all of a sudden you step into some place like canaan and it's Palestinian controlled. And what it was it like? Trashy, yeah. Darkness. There were men walking the streets with guns. It felt oppressive. You felt the heaviness of it. So, I mean, it was like, you can't, if you never experienced it, you would be shocked. I felt the same thing when we first moved to Turkey. When we got off the airplane in Turkey, there was just this heaviness about, spirit. there was a spiritual heaviness in that land. Why? Because they're Muslim. They don't, they don't 
worship Yahweh, who is light and dark, light and light and goodness and love. They worship a system which is God, the little G, who is no God at all, according to what Paul preaches. Right? How Paul says that they're, they're no gods at all. So. The problem with Israel was beginning very early on. Right from the beginning, they did not purge their land as God had told them. So they had their own, they had enemies living on the land. Now the interesting thing to me is um, what since Solomon had identified them and even numbered them, what should he have done at that point? He should have annihilated them right then and there. Actually, they should have been killed in war, in battle for the land. They should have never been allowed to live. Uh, at this point, I would say exile might have been the appropriate thing. I'm not sure, because God didn't really give any instructions concerning what you do once you've messed up. But um, <laughs> all he said was, you know, annihilate them and leave no man breathing. That's what it says in Joshua. And Joshua did that, who, who was the one of the many who was being obedient at that time. All right, so, yes. One thing that came up to me, and that's how God knows the end from the beginning. Mm -hmm. God knew what Solomon was going to do long before Solomon knew what he was going to do. Yes. David went before the Lord, and he wanted to build the temple. Yes. We know that David was a man after God's own heart, mm -hmm. even though he had his moments. Right. But <clears throat> still, what what do you think made David exalted even though he had many sins and many that we know were grievous? What what exalted him? Since we have not done the David study, we missed that. Does anybody know from previous study? There you go. David had a repentant heart. When David was approached by the prophet Nathan, now we're into Nathan. That's why it came into my head. I think I read on him. Um David was repentant. When God revealed sin to him, he confessed it and turned to God, right? So that's one of the things that we do, have not seen, at least at this point, with Solomon. Um, now, I'm not sure if we will, if there's places in his life where he, he does repent of anything, but well, so far we haven't seen that. Did David, okay, Bathsheba, she was not an out, she was a Jewish person. I know she was not to be married because she already was married. But she was within the confines of the Israelites. Was she? Was she? she was Does anybody Israelite. know? Because I haven't studied that recently. Yeah. She was an Israelite. Okay. I know she's in the she's in the bloodline. Oh, uh, jo Joab. And I don't know. Yeah, I know. Me either. Okay. The point I'm asking you, did David marry outside? I don't know. You're going to have to. My point is, daddy was repentant, but daddy was still continually doing the same things that Solomon started doing. Well, he did commit sins, and he did, and he did, and he had multiple wives, so he committed that sin as well. However, he was repentant when God would approach him, where what we're seeing with Solomon is not that at this point. No. Rid of him. He still had him under, under his umbrella, and that's what I'm thinking. It, it, it sure did. 
There were consequences, big time consequences with David. I, th you know, this is the this is to me the the downside of what where we've stepped in. We've stepped into Solomon. And now we want to try to discuss David, and we can't go there because we haven't done that study. I could answer that question if we were in that study, and so could you probably, right? <laughs> but, but what I do know, about the, the significant difference that the Scripture teaches us is that David had a heart after the Lord. He has a heart like mine. Pardon? He believed in one true God. That's right. And we never saw David worshiping on the hills, right? So he only worshiped the one true God, and, and truly... Are there any sins that you can commit that God won't forgive? There's one. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Rejecting the Holy Spirit. It means rejecting the truths that God gives you. God says in Hebrews that you have to believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those that love him. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You must believe God and you and must receive that Holy Spirit. It's all about bowing the knee. We saw Solomon touch on it slightly, but in but for him, rather than him asking God for his his abiding spirit, which might have been a different outcome, uh, he asked for wisdom to lead the people. And so what we don't know is what was his motive behind that. But all we can do is infer from what we're beginning to see what his motive was. And right now what I am seeing is although he had wisdom, and that's why I read this one paper to you um, by um, Calvin, was that there seems to be a distinguishing difference between wisdom, that's just human wisdom in order to rule and govern properly. My question to you is can God give a man who doesn't know him, a position of great authority and accomplish his work. There's a verse I want you to look at in us. Uh, yeah. Say it again, Mar Margaret, I couldn't hear you. Margaret, are you, are you asking me a question? I couldn't understand. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I thought you were talking to me. Okay. All right. So um, there is, yes. Oh, Amanda, go back, back. You're sitting behind Don and his head hides you. I am so sorry. I can only see Don. <laughs> What do you think? Or is it overdone? Is it a lot more gold and stone than God really wanted? Good question. No, that's why I'm asking. That's a good question, Amanda. What do you guys think on this? Do you think do you think God wanted or or uh, he didn't need it? You know, one of I remember there's a verse that said da that Solomon did according to David's instructions. So David, who had this close abiding relationship with God, um, was given some instructions on things that should be done. He had the plans all laid out for them. So Solomon did what David had Really, Solomon was led by the hand for a lot of this, right? The only parts that he touched, he messed up. The parts that he was responsible for, which was... Uh, procuring supplies and procuring the people to do it, which he violated God's laws in both places. But those are the two things that he needed to do. 
his dad had really already laid out the plans and he just executed them. So I would guess the answer is yes, it was according to what God's intentions were for Israel in that time. And God had always told Israel, if you guys remember it through the book of Deuteronomy, you shall worship in the place which I shall show you. You and I looked at the, the David story, how David procured the, the threshing floor of Ornon, right? The Jebusite. Do you remember that in your homework? Okay, so when he procured it, what did God say about that place? And what is the history of that place? Do you know the history of that, of that place? It's where Abraham brought Isaac. And what did God say, or what did Abraham say to God, or what did God say to Abraham? I'm not sure which way it went. When Abraham was obedient to God, brought his son up there, and then he stopped him from sacrificing him. There's a quote in there. It says, and in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What is he speaking of there? A sacrifice of a son, but not Abraham's son. Whose son? God's son. God shall provide it. He says, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That is a really significant point because then later, years later, when David approaches that same mount, God says, here's the place of my choosing. He's backed him up on, on basically by the angel of the Lord the, that, that was slaying the soldiers. And he stops at the, and he stops it when God saw the place. This is very interesting. When God saw, he relented. Why? He saw the mount where Abraham had brought, and he had said, in this mount I shall provide. What did he see when he looked at that mount? He saw the blood of his son shed for sin. And so when he was, a, he was coming, he saw the, the mount of the Lord, he relented and stopped judging the people for their sin. And David, that's the place David picked. That's the place David chose then to build the temple. And it is the very place where Jesus died on Calvary, at the summit of that same mount. In the, in the mount of the Lord, God shall provide. Isn't that amazing? Amazing story. All right. Um... There was a verse I wanted you guys to look at in uh, 2 Timothy. Oh, here it is. Okay, because we're going to look at this. Okay, in chapter 5, we are almost out of time, so we're going to have to... And what is our theme for chapter 5? What do you come up with for a title? We're going to probably just get through 5, and that's going to be it. <laughs> You'll have to do the rest on your own. So what did Solomon do, Solomon do in chapter 5? Okay, first of all, Solomon imports supplies for that temple, right? And what did he do for using, to use for those who would build it? He used... Uh, forced laborers is what the text says in this one. And then in the Chronicles one, it says illegal aliens. <laughs> it doesn't call them illegal. I keep using that word. <laughs> he used for, forced laborers. It's such a common term today that I just thought it was funny. To build the temple. That they had had, they, David had also gone to Hiram and got wood. But that, that's all the friendship was, that they had had a business thing? Yes. 
same thing, kind of the same thing that Solomon did. He did the same thing. Mm -hmm. So in a way, he had demonstrated to his son what not to do, and his son did it. Yes, meaning, but then Chronicles explains to you where that number of people came from. It's the same number, 153,600, right? Now, then from all Israel, it's 30,000. And then it says, and he had 70,000 transporters and 80,000 slaves carried there overseers. Okay, it's from all Israel. And the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. And then there was transporters. Okay. Okay, so those are the 150. So these are the important. And the others are forced laborers. So he used forced labor. Very interesting. I missed that. Okay, so in this case, the forced laborers are those from Israel that he forced. What a contrast to having built the, the tabernacle where people generously gave and they had so much going on that they had to say stop. But at this point in history now, he had to require forced laborers do it. And then besides the forced laborers, so I use for, the forced laborers then are the Jewish. I missed that. I'm glad you guys pointed that out. Okay, so I'm going to put, uh, that's dead. I'll do this one. I need it blue, but I don't have it. So these forced laborers are Jewish. All right, so use forced laborers to build the temple and aliens. I'm going to add that on there then too, because he did both. All right. And then uh, I want you to see then the next thing we see is then in one to, verses 1 to 6, Solomon requests help, right? But who from? The king of Tyre. Now tell me what we know about the king of Tyre from our other studies, like Ezekiel, for instance. Yeah, he was a personification of Satan. God used, in Ezekiel 11, he uses the king of Tyre, starts to talk about what the king of Tyre is like, and then he, he moves into his, his discussion about how, how he has fallen from heaven and how he exalted himself, he wanted to exalt himself above the throne of God and I mean, he goes on and on. So you have to go in and look at Ezekiel 11 on that one. But this king of Tyre, he, uh, so he imports supplies, and I can say from Tyre. King of Tyre. And, that, and go look at it, Ezekiel 11 on that. And you'll see how God views him not very much longer. And as a matter of fact, remember, where are we in history? We're in the, halfway through the Babylonian captivity, and they've been cast off the land. And when we read Ezekiel, one of the, one of the condemnations is in there is, all, is this one in Ezekiel 11, all about the king of Tyre and how bad of a guy he, he was at that point in history. Now, that's not to say this king of Tyre was as bad as the one was later. But what it shows us is that, that generation by generation, the king of Tyre was not a good man. And he was not in it for the glory and benefit of God. Even though the statement in there shows him praising God, right? What do you think that's about? The, very self-serving. When you see diplomacy going on between kings and kingdoms, what do we often do? 
we flatter them, <laughs> right? And we praise them and we acknowledge the things which are of value to them. Why? It's called diplomacy. It's, it's, I call it schmoozing, right? They schmooze in their way into getting what they want, whatever that is. And so this king of Tyre is making a deal with Solomon. They both want something. Solomon sees he's got the best in the land of all things, and he wants them for himself, for his, his palace. Why? It's going to make him look good. It's, and he, and he, he may even have in his heart some real desire to honor God, to do something really grand. Um, and so I'm going to give him that credit because it does say that he loved the Lord, which tells me that he's not an enemy of God. He's just not sold out for God. So he's one of these guys that's kind of benign. He's, he's not a real super bad guy, but he's not, not like David, not hard after God, not, not sold out to please God and then humbly repent when he is, uh, you know, he falls far short right? And with that point being made, somebody go to 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. And we'll close up. Because there's, we, we did not get through as much as we want. I know, I'm so sorry. It's all details on how he... I know, you have to do your homework. I'll send you my chart, dear. You'll get my chart. <laughs> but we covered things, I think, which were far more important. We just had some discussion about how did God, how did Solomon please God, and what is it taught, and some of these points about, well, what does this really mean when he says this or he did that? And how, I mean, I think that we talked more about the importance of the application things today. And I, I don't always do that, I know, but I really did want to hit some things that were more specific. 2 Timothy 2. Uh, starting in 11 to 13, I want to read this to you because I want you to see if you see an application of what is being said here to what we see going on with Solomon. It is a trustworthy statement. If, if we died with Christ, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, what? He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So what does that tell us in there? And what, how does you think that this applies to what we've looked at with Solomon and the events that are going on in Israel at this point? There you go. So although he gave him wisdom, he, he honestly did not always act wisely. Not the kind of wisdom that's spiritual wisdom. It was more of an earthly wisdom for the purpose of ruling and governing and making good deals, good business deals, making good decisions, planning it out. I'll get, I guarantee you his nation said, yay, good on Solomon. Make the, the, the aliens and those forced laborers do the work. The forced laborers, I would guess, would be people who are in trouble. With, with the law or something would be my guess. I don't know. Or people that they just didn't like for some reason. But he used people, instead of asking the people to come in and contribute, roll up their sleeves and give a little sweat and blood, he just, he found people that everyone else was going, yay, that looked like smart to them. And it seemed smart to him. He had wisdom. He did, he found a way to get the work done without imposing on the people. But was that what God wanted? 
Yes. And there, you should have marked that word covenant and, co and colored it on your observation worksheet. It was. Well, it was because anytime two nations uh, covenant with one another, there's an agreement that it's beneficial, mutually beneficial outcome, right? And so as long as Hiram was receiving food and oil and all these things, and Solomon was receiving wood and all these other supplies, then they're both benefiting and they're not going to attack each other. So it makes for a covenant of peace. And in that regard, it looked smart. It looked wise. And on a human level, there was some wisdom in it. And certainly that's how the whole world operates. But what did God want? God wanted to be their king. He wanted to be their resource. He wanted to be their provider. He wanted to be their all in all, right? Okay, so in this case, what we see then is um, Hiram seized a great business opportunity that benefited him and would make him great, providing food, for his nation and so forth, right? The Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised, but the faithfulness of God's promises are not dependent on the faithfulness of man. And that was my point in you reading that Second Timothy. Solomon was not necessarily faithful to God. We see in a lot of places he was not. He was doing many of the things that God directly said, do not do, right? But yet God was still faithful. What did God give Solomon? wisdom to govern his people why would god what's the higher calling in god's opinion on this he's looking over his nation and his long-term goal god has a goal and a purpose and a plan for israel the nation they are they are a called out people for a specific purpose right and so he's going to accomplish it can anything thwart the plans of god no god will even use disobedient rebellious people consider cyrus the king of Persia. There's a verse in Isaiah that says, although he did not know me, I called him for my purposes. Right? Yeah. 175 years before he was even born, he was named. Right? Yeah. And so when he came to the scene and he accomplished it, God says, I'll use him even though he doesn't know me, even though he doesn't call me by name. Yeah, so God can use anyone, whether they're rebellious or not rebellious, whether they're faithful or they're not faithful. And my point to you today is God will be faithful. His loving kindness endures. Well, doesn't uh, verse 14 in chapter 7 say that, that Hiram is part of um, Okay, this is a different Hiram. This Hiram is the worker. That was another point we didn't get to talk about. Who is that Hiram? He's the one who's, who's, high, who's sent in by King Hiram. This Hiram is Hi, Hiram Abi. Hiram Abi is a son of a Danite woman and a Tyrrhenian father. So that, that in, in Chronicles, they call it Hiram Abi, but this is in... Um, I know it, and that's who it is. But when you compare the... King. Yes, and when you put them side by side, they're the same guy because he does all the work that, yeah, the king sends him in. So tell me, what was the problem with Hiram Abi? What, you know, remember I told you they give you all this detail about Hiram Abi who's sent in by the king of Tyre? That shows intermarriage between Israelite woman and a, and a pagan father. Now, there's more details to talk out that out, but they all clarify themselves, but... Exactly. It was, again, intermarrying with people of other nations. And so they just make mention of that. However, did Hiram have great knowledge and wisdom and skill? Did God bless him? 
No, because God can bless with knowledge and talent and skill anyone. Yep. They say the, that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. <laughs> okay, guys, that was a really good lesson. I, I hope you are... I hope you are not getting too crazy with so much work. It is a lot of work. <laughs> too much to talk about. We have to narrow. Here's the deal, you guys. We have to, I have to narrow down. Sub, can you Listen up for just a minute. I have to narrow down subject matters that we're going to discuss. So I, let me just take a little vote from you guys right now. Do you want me 